It's time for another episode of A Journey Through Stock Aitken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and, sorry, what's your name again? I'm Matthew Denby, the other cheerleader on this podcast for Saw's Greatest Moments. We've just had a run of blockbusters from Saw in recent episodes. Their 1987 glory days are well underway by this stage. But before they hit their full stride, they also released a few fascinating little curios and obscurities, didn't they, Gavin? Indeed. Sorry for that introduction. It's episode 26. I'm running out of ideas. Anyway, first up, we're going to look at a song that is pretty legendary in the Saw discography. It's the first of three singles released with the artist listed as Stock, Aitken Waterman. But that wasn't always the case with this single, was it, Matt? No, it wasn't, Gavin. This track sent shockwaves through the UK snobby DJ scene, and it even did really well on the mainstream charts. It's Stock, Aitken Waterman's take on 1987's rare groove trend, a little track called Roadblock. Let's have a listen. That was Roadblock by Stock Aitken and Waterman, released in the UK in July of 87, and it went all the way to number 13 on the charts. It's certainly a break from the pure pop of Toy Boy, isn't it, Gavin? What do you think of Roadblock? It's very different from, you know, the hits that we've just been hearing in previous episodes. Toy Boy, you mentioned, Nothing's Gonna Stop Me Now, I Heard a Rumour, all that kind of stuff that was really sore finding their sound. Roadblock was something completely different. What did I think of it? Well, let's just put it this way. It wasn't what I wanted from Stock Aitken Waterman. Oh, dear Gavin. Well, this track had an interesting history. It erupted out of the divide that was suddenly becoming apparent between Saw and certain club DJs who apparently resented their growing pop success. As we've seen, Saw had risen out of the club scene. They'd been known for some very up-to-the-minute takes on happening sounds with acts like Princess and early commercial house records like Showing Out. But their rising pop profile had really brought out the haters, didn't it, Gavin? Yes, it did. Stock Aiken and Waterman was soon to become a dirty word. Well, three dirty words, I guess. With the start of a backlash, people didn't like all this success coming from one production house. No, that's right. And in Mike Stock's book, The Hit Factory, he describes in some detail how all of this hatred came to a head at the Disco Mix Club Awards. The guys had gone there to pick up a gong for one of their Bananarama mixes and it did not go to plan. Mike Stock writes, As we got to the stage, all three of us got pelted. I even got a can of urine thrown over me. Pete grabbed the microphone and said, I hope you all get your needles stuck up your asses." You have to admire his guts but we really beat a hasty retreat from that hall. Gavin, what do you think of that? That's pretty full on, isn't it? I mean, they're just making music after all, but I think it was probably a combination of their runaway success. And let's face it, Pete Waterman was no shy retiring wallflowers, as that quote indicates. And he's the type of person that I think people either loved or if they weren't into what he was doing, they probably hated him. Yeah, that's right. Well, he had a bit of a a boisterous exterior, but according to Mike Stock in his book, uh, Waterman was really, really hurt by what happened because he'd come up through the club scene he saw himself as one of the club guys and to have what he saw as his contemporaries turn on him apparently really really stung and that played into the birth of this record roadblock well along with that nasty scene at the awards night Saw were also regularly at this stage getting slagged off in publications like Black Echoes Melody Maker Enemy and Sounds and that was really rubbing salt into the wound and back at the studio around this time there was also some heat flying around as well the guys were clashing with Banana Rama 
drummer whose A&R man Pete Tong had been bringing in the latest sounds for them to hear for inspiration. According to Pete Waterman in his book, I Wish I Was Me, it was Pete Tong who first brought in a bunch of Rare Groove records into PWL. There really was quite a snobby scene emerging around Rare Groove at this point. Rare Groove was basically resurrected 70s R&B and funk. The more obscure, the better. The DJs who loved this stuff were competing to show off their knowledge of these Rare Records and boasting about their collections. Now, all this nonsense was like a red rag to a ball for saw. They were determined to show they could make something cool, something that would make these DJs, you know, turn their heads around. Yeah, so they decided to make their own Rare Groove record and show that they were as good as all these snobby people getting into this throwback stuff. And how did that go, Matt? Well, Mike Stock has quite a story about it in his book. Quote, at a loose end, I put a Rare Groove track together, a funky bass, a drum rhythm and a guitar lick. When Matt came back, I asked him if he could think of something suitably trendy as a title. He said he'd heard a radio DJ announce a party that would be so well attended they'd have to put out a roadblock. So I said, right, that's what we'll call the song. Now, apparently the guys wrapped this track up really, really quickly. They left a copy on the desk of their promotions manager, Tilly Rutherford. And apparently Tilly was blown away by it. He really thought, apparently, that it was an original 1970s record. And that's a pattern we're going to see as this record started to hit the market amongst the DJs. Now, a few other people in PWL were involved in the making of this track with Mike, specifically backing vocalists D. Lewis and Coral Gordon, who, if you remember, were the singers on the Mondo Kane tracks. And when we spoke to Dee, we asked her about singing on Roadblock, and here is what she had to say. It wasn't any secret, even in the studio, that that's what they were doing. And it was to prove a point. And I think they did prove a point, actually, because it was released as a kind of slightly anonymous piece of music and it people started to, to talk about it in a way that they probably weren't talking about Stock Aiken Waterman tracks at that time and started to enjoy it without that kind of filter over it and then it turns out obviously it, it was them again doing a slightly different flavor so we were we were aware of that I was aware of that and um, I love that I love the idea that you can come at something without that predisposed idea about what something should sound like people can say oh it's that's all they are they're not just no one is ever just one thing yeah it was a point to prove and I, I feel like you can feel that sort of cheeky energy in there <laughs> like you would have recorded in the time of um, the time period it sounds like it was from and in the process that it sounds like it would have been done um, that kind of American not throw away but throw away in the sense of the way it was recorded kind of naturally recorded versus sort of processed and and tweaked and uh, you know the way you thought about the lots of the poppier stuff that was coming out of um, PWL that time. Okay, so Roadblock was made and even people in PWL thought it might have been a track from the 70s. And so that was the ruse that Stock Aitken Waterman decided to go with. Let's fool people into thinking this is a rare groove track from the 70s and nothing to do with Stock Aitken Waterman whatsoever. Former PWL MD David Howells can take the story from here. Here's David. We had a bit of fun with that. From time to time, we would have fun with the industry or with the media, let's say. Everybody was getting a bit miffed with this. Oh, it's just a bunch of guys who make cheesy records. And, you know, they're all lightweights, not appreciating the skill that goes into having a hit. Let's be honest. Anyone can have a hit. Anyone can have a number one. Try doing it twice or five times. That requires a lot of skill, 
talent, craft, call it what you will. That's what these guys had. So Roadblock was Pete's idea of showing the industry who they were, what they were capable of without anybody realizing. So it was done in great secrecy. When we made the record, the idea was to put it out on a white label 12 inch, completely anonymous and send it out. And while we were trying to think about how you put the label together, all that kind of thing, we decided to put the phone number of our lawyer in New York as the only piece of information on the label. So it looked like it came out of the States and it would be unidentifiable other than that. Then, of course, when the first pressings came up, there was a matrix number in, in and of course, all as you know, if you read the, not only the label, but the surrounding plastic, there is information on there which indicates what the factory is and all that kind of stuff. So there were hurriedly scratching outs of the obvious information. And then the records were sent out, in some cases, specifically to the very people who are being highly critical. You know, the James Hamiltons of this world and a lot of these DJs who knew it all, seen it all, had it all and uh, just let it ferment. And of course, gradually, this whole thing of um, you, you probably heard the stories, you know, of people going, what have you heard this record roadblocker? And the, the DJ going, oh, I've had that in my box for yeah two months or whatever. <laughs> Utter bullshit, of course, but that's the way it works. And uh, and then, of course, people started saying, well, who is this? this is amazing. And, of course, they all started playing it. And then Pete had the great pleasure of going, it's stock aching modern, boys. <laughs> and then, of course, the thing came out commercially and went from there. And what did you think of the idea to basically trick the DJs? Did you think it was a great bit of fun? I thought it was good fun. You know, it's that old expression, isn't it? You can't judge a book by its cover. You know, sometimes you're either in favour or you're out of favour or you're the flavour of the month or you're not the flavour of the month. <laughs> you see acts go through this all the time. And it was just a way of poking people in the ribs and going, see, you weren't paying attention. What do you think the effect was? Do you think it kind of pissed people off? Oh, they got one over on us? No, this was aimed at a very few select people. This wasn't aimed at all club people or all media people or all shops. It was making a point. And of course, the people with open minds just embraced it straight away and went, this is great. No, I don't remember any negativity on it. Yeah, what a great story. And Pete Waterman writes a lot about that in his own book about how he got out the soldering iron and erased <laughs> the UK marks from every single one of these white label copies, which apparently was in up to several hundred copies. He was that enthused. He was that determined to get this record out there with no identifying information. They were really going all out, weren't they? Yeah, they definitely were. And boy, did it work. And in fact, Stock really loved the fact that Black Echoes, their nemesis at this point, really, really fated this record. And he says in his book, Black Echoes said, Roadblock is the best goddamn dance record of 1987. Well, you can't get a better review than that, can you? But they really had to eat humble pie when the truth came out. So with the DJ's fall, the time had come for a major mass market commercial release for the record. Pete Waterman struck a deal with A&M, but he was really, really annoyed when it was suggested to him that the record was, quote, too good to release under the name of Stock Aitken and Waterman. He was so determined that they get their due, he refused that and said, you know, it's coming out as Stock Aitken and Waterman. But one thing he wouldn't do is perform this track live or appear on top of the pops and mime to it. He actually claimed that the only reason this track didn't go to number 
number one is because Saw weren't performing it on that show. What do you make of that, Gavin? Yeah, I don't agree with that. To put it bluntly, I don't see this being a number one record. I don't think it would have made a difference if Stock and Waterman had have gone on top of the pops. And what would they have done anyway? Stood there spinning discs and pressing keyboards and, you know, they weren't the Pet Shop Boys. But I think number 13 is pretty good. It's pretty damn good. And this track had a great legacy. Not only has it been sampled many times, but Pete Waterman even claims that Saw themselves remade this record as one of their best-known hits. Well, I think the proof is in the pudding. Let's hear the bit of Roadblock that he would be referring to. Yeah, I can see a similarity between that and Better the Devil You Know, but that wasn't the only later track that Roadblock led to, was it, Matt? No, that's right. There was an amazing B-side, one of my favourite Saw B-sides that came directly out of this track. It came also from Stock Aiken and Waterman's artistic struggle, shall we say, with Bananarama, because Mike Stock reveals that when Roadblock was still in its formative stage, when it hadn't been released, he used it in his little, uh, how should I say, strategic struggle with Siobhan from Bananarama. He says in his book, and I quote, I played the whole of Roadblock to Siobhan from Bananarama before it was released. When I asked her what she thought about it, she said, yeah, it's a 70s funk track, isn't it? You guys could never do anything like that. She actually said those words. I let her stew for a while. Although she thought the song was fantastic when I finally let on that Saw had done it, she wouldn't believe me. So Matt and I set up a drum pattern, got the bass guitar out and played a couple of bars. She loved it so much that Bananarama wrote a song over the top in an identical groove called Mr. Sleaze, and I put it on the beat side of love in the first degree love that track shall we have a listen sure Now, as well as their own tracks, Stock Aiken and Waterman's Roadblock was reworked into one of those sample-driven tracks that would do really well in the late 80s in the UK. Matt, what song am I talking about? It's one of my favourite ever singles of the late 80s. It's Pump Up the Volume by M-A-R-R-S. Fully labelled with samples, an incredibly exciting, brilliant track. It included a couple of samples from Roadblock, and that created a huge stir, and not for a good reason, because Saw actually put out an injunction on this record to try and stop it. There was a big legal tussle. International versions of this single mostly have the saw samples taken out. One of the consequences of this action was that all of the good favour that saw built up by producing Roadblock as a quote-unquote credible record was smashed to bits because so many club DJs thought that they were really bad news for suing M-A-R-R-S when they themselves, let's face it, had taken inspiration from many club records in the past. Perhaps they didn't formally sample stuff, but they certainly were inspired weren't they, Gavin? Oh, in- indeed. And one of the other consequences of that legal tussle was that Pump Up the Volume's ascension to number one in the UK was delayed, which allowed a certain track, which we're going to hear in the next episode, to stay at number one that little bit longer. Or perhaps it was going to stay there that long anyway. Who knows? But yeah, that added a little bit of controversy to the mix. But anyway, the last piece of the puzzle is that this wasn't the only time that Roadblock was released. Four years later, Roadblock 91 came out featuring technotronic rapper Einstein going, and here we go, and here we go, over the top. Let's have a (laughs) listen to it. Hello, who can feel the rhythm? The rest will... 
Okay, Einstein did a little bit more than just say, and here we go, and here we go. What do you think, Matt? Could I have done the rap on Roadblock 91? Look, I'll just be diplomatic and say, if Technotronic were going to put forward any of their talent, I wish it had been Yakit K. I think the record could have been, how should I say, better? Matt, I've never known you to be diplomatic in your life. But anyway, now, (laughs) that is the long and complicated story of Roadblock. I don't know. I have a thing about music being used to prove a point that it doesn't always sit that well with me. But in this case, if I'm just thinking about the song, it's not the type of stuff I was into in 1987 and it's not really the type of stuff I'm into now. Matt, were you a fan of Roadblock? Yeah, I did like it. I did like it. And funnily enough, I actually heard Mr. Slees before I heard Roadblock because Roadblock got absolutely no mainstream play in Australia, whereas, you know, I had all the Bananarama 12 inches. So when I finally heard Roadblock, I'm like, that sounds exactly like Mr. Slees. But yeah, I like them both. I think they're good records. All right. So from Stockacre to Waterman releasing something under their own names, we move now to an artist who came to Saw because her record company thought having their names behind her would work out. I'm talking about Precious Wilson, whose record label Jive sent her to work with Stock Aiken and Waterman to record a cover of Only the Strong Survive. Here is Precious Wilson's version of that song. Only the Strong Survive by Precious Wilson, which came out in July 1987, unfortunately didn't chart in the UK, didn't make the top 100. And following the Three Degrees, Debbie Harry, Gloria Gaynor, this was the latest legacy artist to come and work with Saw. It was also the latest jive signing following Samantha Fox. The song was a cover of a 1969 track by Jerry Butler that had reached number four in the US. Let's hear a little bit of that original version. So I'm telling you right now. I must say, I don't mind Precious Wilson's update of this track. It's not one of my favourite Saw records, but it's not one of my least favourite either. Matt, what do you think of this song? Well, I think the original is a wonderful, wonderful record, so it's really hard to follow that up. But I've just got to say, generally, I love Precious Wilson's voice. She's got such a range. She's got a beautiful, expressive, rich, thick voice. Can't get enough of it. Loved her voice on some of those Frank Farian records. Well, funny you should mention Frank Farian, because we talked to Precious Wilson, and we took a journey through her career with her for A Journey Through Saw. And by the time she came to work with Stock Acre Waterman, she'd been in the music industry for over a decade as a solo artist and before that as the lead singer of Eruption. And she told us that she kind of became the lead singer of that disco band by default. You can hear the full story of how that happened in the bonus material. We're going to jump into our chat with Precious when Eruption were in Germany and came to the attention of Frank Farian, who, if you're not aware of who Frank Farian is, he was the man behind Bone and he'd go on to launch Milli Vanilli, La Bouche, No Mercy, a whole heap of successful world-dominating European dance bands, disco bands, depending on the era. So here's Precious talking about what would turn out to be Eruption's big break. At the time, did it feel like a big deal? Oh, Frank Farian is going to work with us. We didn't know who he was. We, it's only in retrospect that we said, wow, that was like a historic momentous time 
we would just think, oh, thank God for that. At least we'll be able to have lunch. Oh, right. A tour. Oh, okay. So we got like maybe six months of work. That's how we were just going from gig to gig. We were not looking at the bigger picture. You know, we just thought, okay, we've got this opportunity now. Let's just do our best and make sure that they don't sack us. You know, we don't get fired. So that was how we were looking at it at the time. What was Frank like to work with when you did start working with him and then did start supporting Bernie M? Well, we were always very aware that Bernie M was his baby and that everything was centered around them. And yes, we were having an opportunity, but I think at, a, at the time, our role was only to support and enhance Boney M. And to work with him, for me as a singer, I must admit, I had a lot of freedom in how I could express the songs, how I interpreted the songs. Basically, all he did, did was just edit what I sang and then mix it, you know. Uh, he didn't tell me how to sing it. He might suggest a couple of songs um, later on when I did my solo album with him. But as a band, we were very, um, which is probably part of the problem, really. We had our very strong views about how we wanted to do the music and the songs we selected, the songs we wrote, and how we played and performed them. He didn't really interfere much with that. Okay, so as well as supporting Boney M, Eruption continued their recording career and they scored big hits with covers of I Can't Stand the Rain and One Way Ticket. Matt, you're a little bit older than me. Apparently so, yeah. <laughs> I don't really remember these songs from the time. I know them now. But were you into Eruption as a little tyke? I was really aware of I Can't Stand the Rain. I actually think that's one of Frank Farian's best ever records. I think it's just brilliant. It's You know, I, I like it more than the original. I think it's really, really good. I like it better than the Tina Turner version. I think it's just a perfect marriage of sort of Euro pop disco and uh, soul sounds. Frank Farian, no matter what you think of his business practices or his use of uh, models, how shall we say, models models or photogenic visual artists, he is indisputably a pop genius. He's made so many good records. And I really think I Can't Stand the Rain is right up there at the top of the tree when you look at his whole catalogue. And a part of the reason that record is so good is Precious's voice, because that is a brilliant vocal. Yes, definitely. I'm not as keen on One Way Ticket. I find the chorus of that a little bit, I don't know, it sounds more like Boney M than Boney M in, in a way, the One Way Ticket. Wait, let's hear I Can't Stand the Rain and One Way Ticket now so you know what we're going on about. And then we're going to hear from Precious about those eruption hits. did you think of the idea to remake I Can't Stand the Rain? Well, actually, that song was brought to us by one of Frank's right-hand men who doesn't get much credit at all for the success of Boney M or even for our success. There was a gentleman called Hans-Jörg Meyer who brought the song to us because, you know, Hans-Jörg was very kind of groovy, whereas Frank was very kind of what we'd say country bumpkin type of guy. But uh, Hans-Jörg was very had an ear out for like everything else that was happening kind of internationally. Frank was very focused on, well, what do the German people want to listen to? And in fact, that was one of the, uh, the um, 
secret sauce, I would say, to Bonium's music in that the tracks were always chosen so that a German person whose first language obviously wasn't English, but that a German person could sing along, you know? And so that's why the, the, there's a simplicity about the songs about Bonium. I think that's also why they've survived. And, and that rubbed off on eruptions. Now, Hans York chose I Can't Stand the Rain because he was kind of a little bit more groovy and he knew that we were like kind of like a strong R&B flavoured background. And it was a song that I loved the way and people sang anyway. So it was right up my street, you know. But we thought, you know what, let's take the tempo up a little bit. Because if you hear the original, it's very slow and bluesy. And we were in the era of disco, which was up tempo. So we took the tempo up and we became very literal. The song is called I Can't Stand the Rain. Oh, all right. So let's have some thunder at the beginning. <laughs> it sounds really naff now, but we, we were like, hey, let's have some thunder. And so we did. And that's how the song starts, actually. And then another huge success with One Way Ticket. What, what did you think of that song? Well, we loved it. But again, this is where Frank came in with his ideas and his nose for hits in that the refrain, the chorus, was, was Frank's idea. Because if you listen to the original of that, there is no chorus as what we've added. And then the whole intro of that song, it starts off with the piano and me humming. That was quite uh, an in fashionable in thing at the time you know like uh, Thelma Houston's song Totally With This Way had, had humming and Baccarat also Yes So I Can Boogie had humming so we thought okay let's have let's have some humming <laughs> when you look back you think oh wow there must have been some deep thought that went into these hits no but I have to say that song is really magical because even nowadays well pre-COVID the, the whole audience no matter how long the set is they're waiting for one-way ticket and it's quite interesting it doesn't matter where in the world I'm performing it that song is just magical in the way it's kind of like touches and the impact it has on people internationally it's it's I'll just put it down to it's, it's just been a blessing how that song resonates around the world Okay, we now reach an interesting turning point in Precious Wilson's story. As she was going solo from Eruption, she sang on a Boney M track called Let It All Be Music, and her debut solo single, a cover of Hold On I'm Coming, was included on Boney M's album at the time. Let's hear those songs, and then Precious will tell us all about this era. was actually originally for me to sing the whole of the song. I actually recorded all three verses. I guess Frank wanted to, because he always wanted to add a little bit more of R&B to Boney M as time went on. And I guess I was the vehicle for that. And then he, he decided to add his voice on there and Liz's voice on there and took my voice only on the third verse and the ad-libs on the outro. Yeah. So uh, like I said, he used everyone around him to support 
his baby Bodhi M. But that's okay because I, I love the song as well. And, and, and it was a great opportunity to be featured on that album because, you know, I love Bodhi M's songs. I love their music. I think there's something very special about the music of Bodhi M, very much like ABBA. And so it was a privilege to be part of that. When I decided to go solo, Frank actually offered me quite a lot of money. And my mom's really upset about it that I didn't take the money to join Bodhi M. But then I'm thinking, well, hang on, are they going to have like four women in the group? Or is somebody leaving? And because I get on really well with everybody, all of them, Bobby, Marcia, Maisie, Liz, I, I knew that it was going to be Maisie that was going to get kicked out. Now, Maisie's a good friend of mine. And I just thought, no, 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 no. I can't do that because the, the, the underbelly of this music industry is already terrible and horrible. And I wasn't going to add to that. And so I turned down the offer to join Bonnie M. And I thought, why am I leaving a group to join another group? How does that make sense? No brainer. So I just decided to go solo. And um, that in itself, it was quite a struggle, to be honest, to try and get Frank to not sing on my album as well, solo album. It was a struggle. And it took a couple of songs to get him off of my solo album, not being horrible. But come on, you said it was solo. <laughs> you know, my manager is put down, so he didn't like my manager very much, to say, it's a solo album, Frank. Oh, it's a solo Precious Wilson <laughs> Solo featuring Frank. <laughs> Don't tell him. <laughs> no, actually, no, no. We get on all right now from a distance because now he's in Miami. But um, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. You know, life goes on. <laughs> So Precious parted way with Hansa Records, the label she'd been with since the eruption days in the mid-80s, and she signed with Jive Records. And just before she got to the hit factory, Precious released a song called Nice Girls Don't Last, and I'm going to play a little bit of that for a reason. Nice Okay, Matt, so who does that remind you of, that song, Nice Girls Don't Last? It's really bugging me because it reminds me of something and I can't put my finger on it. Like Ochi Brown, Haywood Princess, that kind uh, of vibe. Yeah, yeah. Any song in particular? Reminds me a little bit of 100% Pure Pain, a little bit of Just a Tease by Princess, but basically it seemed like, without even going to Saw, Precious Wilson was kind of on the same page of Saw with that whole R&B sound they were going with with all those artists. So it did seem to make sense for her to be sent off to work with Saw. We finally got to the Stockaken Waterman part of her story, so let's hear her talk about it now. Nice Girls Don't Last, to me, sounded quite similar to what Stockaken Waterman were doing with Princess and Haywood and, and people like that around that time? Yeah, Princess used to live in my house in Germany and she toured with me um, as my backing singer along with um, one of the girls from Mai Tai. And in fact, I think uh, her stage name, Princess, her brother who managed her was inspired with that name because my name's Precious and he wanted something that would be, you know, kind of easy to remember, kind of like on an international um, stage. So yeah. So Nice Girls was, I guess, in the same flavour and perhaps that was why Jive connected with, with Stock Lake and Waterman to do my single. Perhaps that was the reason because of what they were already doing. Yeah, that could have been the reason. I mean, I, d I don't know, but um, that could have been the reason, yes. So it came from Jive, the idea to work with Stock Aiken Waterman on Only the Strong Survive? Yes, indeed. Where did the idea come to cover Only the Strong Survive? I think it was suggested by the label because, it, again, it's kind of that R&B flavour, but obviously Stock Aiken Waterman had that magic touch of, you know, that recipe of making it very commercial and danceable. Um, yeah, I really admired 
how quickly they worked. It's incredible. You know, by the time you get to there, to the studio, maybe have a cup of tea, a glass of water or something, talk through the track, hear, hear the backing track, and then you're there, you're in front of the mic, and then you're done. All right, bye, thank you, see you very much. It was like a factory, as they said, the hip factory. They had that formula down pat. You know, it's no messing around. You know, you're in and then you're out. Right, right. So when you got there, the backing track for Only the Strong Survive was essentially complete. Yes, we'd, we'd already obviously worked out the key, which key I was going to sing it in. You know, I, I learned the song, meanwhile, learned the lyrics. And it was very quick. I think you're probably less than two hours by the time you sit down and talk about it hear the track, warm up, try it a couple of times, and that, that's it, you were done. Mike Stock seems to be the one known for doing more of the work with the vocalists and the vocal work. Did, did you two work together on, on your vocals? The thing with me is that I, I kind of go in really prepared, and so it would be tweaking, just tweaking things like, okay, maybe hold that line a bit longer, or, you know, okay, can we have a bit more level or lay off the mic a bit? It's that type of tweaking and so you just lay it down and then once you can they they um decide which version of the tracks they want you know in the verses or on the chorus or which ad lib lines that you've done that they're going to include or which they're not going to use so you just lay it down I, you see the thing is i i'm i don't know if that's a good thing or not but i'm kind of like left to my own in means of, of, of doing the vocal and then it's like you put it all in pile it all in and then I leave and they decide which bits to use, basically. There's not much guidance to do because I, I've learned the song. And were you happy with the finished product? Loved it! I put it on my Instagram the other day because I, I did this TV show back in the 80s performing that song. And a lot of those people who only know one-way ticket, I can't explain, but, you know, thought, oh, oh, I do. Sounds really good song. And it still has that magic. It's, it's like a, it's quite a timeless magic about that track. What a delight it was to chat to Precious Wilson and hear her story. You can hear the full interview in the bonus material, including how she ended up on this track. Yes, I Feel Love, the Donna Summer cover by Messiah. Let's move on from one artist who had enjoyed great success in Europe. We now come to a girl group who were huge in their home country of the Netherlands. It's Dolly Dots with What a Night. Also released in July 1987, What a Night by Dolly Dots. Unfortunately, it didn't chart in the UK, but it did reach number 19 in Netherlands. I've been a fan of this song since it cropped up on Hit Factory Volume 2, and that's how I heard it, that's how I got to own it. Matt, are you a fan of this party starter? Yeah, it's a fun little song, you know, until very, very recently. I didn't know very much about the Dolly Dots at all. They had no profile in this country whatsoever, so it just took a bit of recess to find out a bit about them. They seem 
like a lot of fun. And the more I read, the sort of the more I get into this song because it is a fun song, fun band. Love it. Yeah. As I said, Dolly Dots were a phenomenon in the Netherlands. They had a string of 14 top 10 hits and a number of other songs that also made the top 20. It was just hit after hit after hit. And I spoke to one of the main singers in the band, Angela Hultalsen, and asked her all about the group. And here is what she had to say. We worked like crazy for 10 years. We were very young when we started. We're like sisters, you know, so we quite had a good time. We've been all over the world. We never had a big world hit, but we were just, um, everybody wanted us in the programs because we were a lot of fun. After 10 years, we just knew that we had to start picking up our own life because we kind of skipped normal life between 18 and 28, you know, a time where you start to build up your life. So we all had to uh, start doing that. Now, as, as well as all those hits, you had dolls, you had a TV show, you had a movie, which I was watching some of the movie on YouTube the other day. It's a Hollywood movie, but it wasn't very good one. It didn't matter to us. We had a great time. <laughs> And you did all those things like a decade before Spice Girls. You were the original girl power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody told me that they had a picture of the Dolly Dots when they are they were just collecting the girls for the Spice Girls. Now, I haven't been there this conversation, but it was in an interview with one of the guys who, uh, who was behind that. And actually, if you if you look at the early pictures of the Dolly Dots and, and, and later on, 10 years later at the Spice Girls, you, they uh, they were inspired, I think. But the Spice Girls yeah. got very rich and we were just uh, Dutch girls having fun. Yeah. I understand that you weren't quite sure about joining the group at first. Is that right? Yeah, I was, I was in a band at that time uh, with my brother and I had this um, contract. I was very young, 17, I think, when I got a, a record contract. Uh, so, I, you know, I was busy with that. And then people would call me and I would do some, you know, some studio work for others. And and then they would call because I was so young. They would call me for projects. And I always said no. And with this project, I said, oh, I've got a great friend. She has the the voice you want for this project. And that was Ria. Uh, God uh, bless her soul. She died in 2009. And so when I came to check out and I met I met the other girls. For me, there was an instant of, oh my God, I need to be with them. And it I still cannot explain, but it was love at first sight. And of course, it took a while for us to get used to each other and, and, and be a, a group, but it's still a, a very strong sisterhood. So I, you know, it was not the music that I was good in singing, but it was just... Um, the best decision in my life to say yes and, and be a part of it. Okay, Matt, let's drill down and talk about some of the Dolly Dots music. Their first single came out in 1979 and it was called, in brackets, Tell It All About, out of brackets, Boys. And that went to number four in the Netherlands, a massive hit straight out of the gate. And it went like this. My goodness, how ABBA is that? 
Well, I see it as sort of more sort of 60s do what pop. It's a lot of fun, however you categorise it, though. I watched this for the first time today on YouTube and I was bopping along. Certainly, certainly very catchy. Now, in those early years, Dolly Dot's producers, Peter Van Aston and Richard Dubois, also channeled a bit of Boney M and a bit of disco on some of the tracks. Let's hear from Angela about the sound of the Dolly Dots. There's a real ABBA vibe to those early singles yeah. And, yeah. And, and you're laughing. Did you get that comparison a lot in the early days? Oh, you know, what, what the guys who, um, the guys would always, which I didn't like, but they would always, if, if something was a hit, they would copy it and make it a little different. And I always thought with all the creativity, it's such, they were so talented. Why not make something new instead of always copying? And I think that's the reason why we never really broke through, you know, no, it, it, we didn't have big hits in other countries. We had a lot of bubbling under, but it was never, never authentic enough. We were very authentic, but the songs were just great, but not authentic. You know, you would always think, oh, that's a bit ABBA, that's a bit this, this. And I've always regretted that. And obviously your sound evolved over time. It went from the ABBA Boney M sound and then to a bit of disco. How much input did you as, as a group have into the sound and the songs or were they quite controlling? Well, you know, when we started a group, four of the girls weren't singers. They would dance in a sort of top of the pop and they were just picked out. And then I was asked, and then I took my friend Ria. So we had two professional singers and four girls who were very professional and, and knew how to make something come across on television because they've been dancing on television. But, you know, we decided, because the sound was good, just the combination of singers and, and girls who just had a voice uh, but weren't singers yet. But the sound was so good. What we did is is I was in the studio a lot because I, I like I like it very much, but we were always so busy, so couldn't be there all the time. But we would try out. Maybe let's try Patty and Anita to do this. Oh, that sounds good. Maybe Shale, can you come back? So we were always looking for the right sound. And and Peter was the one who was with us in the studio, and Richard was doing the things you know, behind the, the desk. And it was a lot of fun. And they had their favorites, you know, they had the favorites. And if something worked, they'd like to do that over and over again. And we would, we said, no, that's, that's boring. Let's, let's try this. So we kind of worked together on that, I think. So the girl group's biggest hit came in 1983 with Loved Me Just a Little Bit More in brackets, totally hooked on you. It got to number two in the Netherlands. They also reached number two with a cover of Do A Diddy Diddy, which came out in 1982. But Loved Me Just a Little Bit stayed in the chart a little bit longer so I'm going to call that their biggest hit let's have a listen to it now Yes, more Motown influence, totally Diana Ross there and in a good way, I've got to say. Yeah, I really like that song. I can see why it was such a big hit. Now, in 1984, Dolly Dots changed record label from WEA to Areola. They continued to work with Peter and Richard, but that changed with 1985's Attention album. When they switched things up and released my favourite track besides What A Night called Only The Rain, here it is.
Okay, Matt, I know you're going to know what this one's influenced by. Bom, 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 bom. Would it happen to be relaxed by Frankie Goes to Hollywood? Or perhaps did they get their ideas from agents aren't aeroplanes, Gavin? <laughs> I would say Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but yeah. it's. I mean, the chorus takes it in a whole new direction, but yeah, that backing track definitely sounds uh, very Frankie Goes to Hollywood inspired. Let's hear about this new era for Dolly Dots with a new label and their new producers from Angela. And then you changed record label in 1984. They had a much better deal, like with new artists, you know. They do everything they can to keep you as poor as possible. Musicians, you know, we just have fun doing it. We were the most popular group in Holland. It still had, these were the 80s. It still had a problem with making enough money to to pay the rent. So when we got a better deal, we we took the better deal. And you started working with some different producers before Stock Ake and Waterman as well, didn't you? Yeah, uh, we did with Erik, Erik van Tijn, uh, van Tijn and Fluitsma. They were the Stock Ake and Waterman of, of the Netherlands. They were very, very successful. They worked with friends of ours. That was an international hit. My love is history. You know that song? Mai Tai, yeah. Mai Tai. They were just, and they were doing working with the Star Sisters and they were, we wanted to work with them for one track. And they said, no, 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 we want to do the whole album. So that was nice after so many years just to, to be with different guys, younger guys. And uh, Anita had left the group. So she was working with Peter and Richard and Peter and Richard didn't like it when we left. So there was a lot of awful gossip. It, it wasn't very pleasant, but we were with with the five of us, we work with uh, Fontaine and Fluitsma, and that was a great time. Got some great tracks out of them. And then we went to the United States and made another album for the movie, and we did that with Larry Lee. That was a lot of fun too. It's good that you did get the chance to yeah to kind of strike out and, and go yeah no you know it's time for a change and and we're able to do that even if it meant putting a couple of noses out of joint i guess mm-hmm. well you know let's be honest we did all the work and uh, we didn't get the money so at a certain time we were just so powerful with the five or six of us that we may we may think we changed things it's a beautiful story actually one day i should write a book it's about women empowerment and it's about fucking you all we're having a great time you want to join us okay you do it our way so this is how we grew from very young girls into mature women okay so the hits kept coming for dolly dots in their home country and now's where we get to the stock aiken waterman part of the story and what a night was the song that stock aiken waterman came up with for them matt to me this sounds like a hit can you see why it wasn't a hit in the uk Well, perhaps because they didn't have a background profile, it may have been a bit of a soft entry into the marketplace. Let's look to the Spice Girls, who the Dolly Dots were perhaps an early version, and say, when you enter the market, you enter with a bang. They really needed something like a wannabe. They needed something a bit more novel, perhaps like some of their earlier hits in their homeland. Something of that nature perhaps would have got them more attention than this. This is a good song, but, you know, I think when you're trying to make an impression for the first time, you've got to put everything on the table. Fair enough. All right, let's hear Angela story of working with Stock Aiken Waterman. Here she is. I think Pete Waterman liked us a long time and he reached out to us and he said, how can it be that the Dolly Dots are not as big as ABBA? How come? So I had these big stories about it. Well, of course, we 
knew the guys with big stories. So we said, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, do your best, do your best. How familiar were you with Saw's, we were still kicking on his work before going to record with them? Like you knew Banana Rama and Dead or Alive and all that? Banana Rama was, I think, at the same time as us. I don't know, but we had Mel and Kim, you know. Tay, 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 Those girls, we met them already in Holland on television shows. We loved them. They were so much fun. So we we knew about Stock Aiken and Waterman. So when Peter Pete Waterman reached out, we were quite excited. And so you went to London. Was it kind of locked in that you and Rhea would do the lead vocals or was that kind of decided while you were there? Well, what always worked is that Rhea would start and then I would come in with a little edge after that. That would always work and then have the nice dolly dot sound. I think they decided. I don't remember. You know, I can always consider these songs as something we do together, but you're right. There are two lead parts in it. Yeah. So now when Rhea is not alive, the other girls are just all taking their turns on on those parts. So now it feels for me, it feels like a song we all sing together. But you're right. It's too, I think they decided it. I don't remember. It's interesting you said Peter and Richard used to imitate other records because you know who else did that? Stockaker and Waterman would do that. They would hear something and they would imitate it. But you couldn't hear it. You could, the thing is that for me, when I work with them, it was the first time for me to be working and recording a song the way they were doing it. And this is the way a lot of songwriting now happens in a group. You know, somebody, do you have that beat? Okay, well, I have this line and, and then you work together and, and you make a track. Before that, with the dots, they would say, this is a song, this is demo, we're going to do that. We would do change the top lines, we'd make it more interesting or whatever. But with Stock Aiken and Waterman, we just started in the studio. They would have a beat and they would have a word and, and you would it would be constructed. It was not like you were singing a song in the studio. You were just constructing once in a while singing a line or or and, and it was for me, it was amazing to see. I thought, oh, this is a new way of writing. There we go. That, that's interesting because some artists complain that they would go into the studio with Stock Aiken and Waterman and it was all done. You had the Stock Aiken and Waterman experience with your other producers. Yeah. Well, the thing is that for me, they didn't have the song ready. I mean, they were very directive, of course. There were different three guys, you know, they all did different things. Pete Waterman was the blah, blah, blah. Ooh, a lot of fun. And so they all had their job. But I thought it was exciting to work, to get in. And, and is there something you could sing on that? Now it's whoa, 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 things like that just were created at that time. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a nice experience. The blonde guy, what was his name from Stock Aitken and Waterman? Mike Stock. Mike, Mike. He was doing the vocals. And I remember it was very pleasant to be working with him. So we kind of tried things out and he could ask me things. And at that time I, I could sing anything. Now I'm getting older. But it, I remember that they might have had some ideas, but, you know, Pete would walk in. He says, mm, you know what I miss? Something like, and he walked out and then the other guy would play it. And I thought, what the fuck? They just, they're flowing. And so it was, for me, it was very energizing for to see how, how they were working with the three of them. And, and Pete had such a, he had no doubt about his own things. So he, he would come in and sing this, but it would work. So I think it was really put together during recording. That's how I remember it. 
And did you spend more time in the studio than than the other girls, you and Ria, than the other girls in the group because you were doing more of the vocal work? Um, Mike really asked me to do some other stuff as well because I could go high and belt really loud and, and have the edge, a rock edge. And I remember working with him on several things. He, he just used me to try things out and I really enjoyed that. And did you only record the one track? This is the kind of big question. Yeah. Okay. Only one. Yeah. They got so famous and before you could even talk about a second track, it was already eight months later and we just didn't have the patience to wait for them. And so when you heard the finished version and it had all been mixed and all the parts put in, what did you think? I was just blown away. I thought it sounded really good. It sounded rich. It sounded very modern, especially the extended version. I loved so much. I loved it. I just, I think I was the most, I was the happiest with the track, I think, of all. But you see, whenever I like a track, it's never a big hit. <laughs> they had one flop, I think, one record that didn't work because the Netherlands didn't like us uh, to, to be working with foreign people. So they didn't play the record on the radio. So when it doesn't become a hit in, in your own country as a big group, it won't be a hit somewhere else. So it was the only record of Stock, Aiken and Waterman that, that wasn't successful. But it's a fabulous track, I think. But I have to say, it's not the only song by Stock Aiken and Waterman that wasn't um, a hit. There have been lots of flops. Oh, really? Oh, I always thought we were the only one. We, I always thought, oh, they were so successful. The whole world was just, just you know, everywhere. And, and then it didn't work with us, which was sad. So as we've said, What a Night was unfortunately not a hit. And who knows what might have happened if it had have been. But it turned out that it was time for the band to call it quits. Let's let Angela explain why. We were just kind of wondering what would happen with us if this would be a world hit, a big, big hit. Oh, my God, we have to travel around the world again. And we all looked at each other. We thought, if we want to be moms, we want to have another career, we need to stop now. <laughs> so we, we just wanted to get on with our lives. So we, uh, we decided to stop. What a Night didn't take Dolly Dots International, but what about a singer who'd already had major solo success in the past? Matt, who's next? She'd been one of the major stars of the early 1980s with a bunch of mega hits. And American singer Laura Branigan was looking for another chart topper when she engaged Saw to work on a couple of tracks for her Touch album in 1987. The first single from that LP was Shattered Glass. Let's have a listen. That was Shattered Glass by Laura Branigan, released in August of 87. It reached number 48 in the US, number 60 in Australia, 43 in Germany, 78 in the UK. Bit of a disappointing showing for someone who'd had some really, really iconic hits of the earlier part of the decade. Shall we have a listen to those, Gavin? Yes, please. Love a bit of Laura. Here is a Laura Branigan hits montage.
You don't get much more 80s than a montage, do you, Gavin? Some really iconic songs there. Unfortunately, Shattered Glass didn't end up being one of them. What do you put that down to? I really don't know. I mean, other than the fact that it possibly was a couple of years after Laura's heyday, you know, Gloria had come out in 1982 and been really massive in 1983 in Australia and was then followed by those other hits that we heard. So that was 84, 85. This was 1987. So the only reason why I think that Shattered Glass wasn't a big hit was that maybe the momentum had faded because my goodness it is one of the best songs Stock Aiken Waterman released in 1987 and Laura's vocal is fantastic it's a combination of a brilliant singer great song great production I don't know what was wrong with the record buying public it should have been massive this is a good record. It's not a great record. I'm sorry, I have to disagree with you. I think Laura was really on the money by choosing Saw to produce, but the song choices, which apparently came from her management and not from Saw, were not good choices. Ugh. This song sounds like something from another era. It sounds like something from the earlier 80s. It sounds like the Laura Brannigan song formula that really worked for her with tracks like Gloria, but society and pop music had moved on, Gavin. This is not the early 80s. This is 1987, and Shattered Glass was not going to cut it. I had not moved on, Matt. And, you know, I think Shattered Glass wasn't a million miles away from something like Nothing's Gonna Stop Me Now in terms of its sound. And if that can be a top 10 hit, why couldn't Shattered Glass? But anyway, Shattered Glass was a cover version, which I didn't realise at the time and, and didn't work out for many years later. Shall we hear a bit of the original version? Let's do. Let's disco down. And that was the original version of Shattered Glass from the disco era by Ellie Warren. Now, you did allude to the fact that uh, Laura recorded a couple of tracks with Stock Aiken and Waterman and that they both were cover versions. The other one was a sore original, Whatever I Do, Wherever I Go. What did you think of Laura's decision to re-record Hazel Dean's hit, the first Stock Aiken Waterman top five hit in the UK, no less? Look, Laura fans, please don't hate me. I'm just going to be honest. This is a really tepid version of that song. Laura doesn't sound like she's into it. The production isn't even that great. And I've got to say, again, this is something from another era. You know, we're now in the middle of Saw's 87 heyday and we're harking all the way back to their very first hit. Now, everybody knows I love that track. I love High Energy. But this song is, you know, it's not 1987. It's something from a previous time. I think this is really Laura's management that screwed up here. I think if they'd gone to Saw and say, please, write some fresh material for Laura, please make us something 1987. The outcome might have been very, very different. We could have had something contemporary from Laura. We could have had her returning to the top 10 where she deserved to be because she was a fantastic singer and it's a shame that, you know, she'd ebbed away by this point. Let's hear Laura's take on whatever I do, wherever I go, and then I'll tell you what I think when we come out of it. Now, Matt, I'm going to agree with you to an extent on this one. I don't think this is as good as Hazel Dean's original version. I think Hazel's was a work of genius. This does feel a little bit undercooked. I don't know, maybe they didn't have as much time to get this track done and they spent all more of their time together working on Shattered Glass. And, you know, Stock Aiken Waterman didn't have that much time with Laura. I think it was a bit of a flying visit, wasn't it? 
That's right. Pete Waterman was quoted as saying in the record mirror that Laura flew in from New York, slept for a couple of hours, came down to the studio, recorded the vocals and flew out again. So he said that she was literally in Britain for seven hours. I mean, apparently she's that busy that she could only stay in Britain that long. Now, maybe she was that busy, but perhaps if they'd given her an extra day, they might have got something better out of her because, sorry, this isn't it. I mean, as we know, Stockhaker Waterman often did get brilliant vocals in like, you know, anywhere between 20 minutes and an hour. So, you know, seven hours is, is potentially quite a lot of time. But I guess if she slept for a couple of those hours, maybe not. Now, yeah, I don't think it's the best track Stockhaken Waterman ever did or that Laura ever did. But, you know, Shattered Glass, I feel like they nailed it and I'm not going to hear otherwise. So I'm going to throw to someone else instead to talk. And that is Mike Stock, who's going to talk a little bit about working with Laura Branigan. Here he is. She was lovely. Absolutely lovely. I wish we had, done, had the chance to do more with her. But there you go. She was lovely. Uh, and I remember the sessions. I remember all these sessions but I, I I couldn't tell you who she contacted to come and work with us but probably David Howells I think this is the answer most of the time David Howells sort of our business manager would convince us to work with whoever because of there'll be a reason for doing it you know well obviously with Laura she's had her reputation her hits and her obviously a good a good um, vehicle for us and in, in the studio was it um, a situation like Donna Summer where it was just like oh wow listen to her yeah yeah, we didn't, I don't know what we did with Laura apart from whatever I do. What else did we do with her? Have you got that in your... Shattered Glass. Oh, yeah, Shattered Glass, yeah. They were, well, they, they were both, both songs that were already written. So I didn't get, which is what I would have liked to have done with her. You know, here we start with a new song and get the feedback with her and see where she can take it. You know, that we didn't do. What did you think of her version of Hazel's Whatever I Do? I think, I th- you know, I think difficult to answer the question, really, because, uh, you know, it's only a couple of years after we did the Hazel one and that was still popular. So I think she wanted to sort of take it back to the States with her. I, I, look, I haven't heard it in years. I think it was okay. She certainly sang it well, but whether we gave it any new flavour in the production, I can't recall. We probably didn't, probably stuck too much like, I don't know. And then to wrap up this section, we actually have audio of Laura Brannigan, the late Laura Brannigan, who passed away in 2004 at the age of just 52 from a brain aneurysm. You know, her life tragically cut short, such a talent who is no longer with us. But we have some audio of Laura talking about working with Stock Aiken Waterman, thanks to her legacy manager, Kathy, who supplied this for us. Let's have a listen to what Laura had to say about the Stock Aiken Waterman experience. What I will say about Stock Aiken Waterman is they have that formula down for the, that, that dance era. I had some real run-ins with them about not, I wanted to sing the whole song through and then use my vocal, my whole vocal. And what they do sometimes is they loop the vocal, they'll just get one line and then loop it. And I really was uh, very adamant that I wanted my, my whole, uh, my whole vocal down because I sing every line differently. I don't sing, you know, and I just want every shattered glass and, you know, if you're shattered glass to be the same. So we had some, uh, So now the audio is a little bit faint there, but I hope you could hear that basically Laura went into bat for herself and said, you know what, I want to sing this song from top to finish. You're not looping my vocals, which as we know, Saw were wont to do, weren't they, Matt? That's right. That was definitely their established working uh, pattern. But, you know, some of these established singers who had their own way of doing things, they weren't going to sit down and, you know, be told what to do. And Laura certainly stuck up to her creative process. And I'm sure she had no regrets in doing so. So now after three unsuccessful singles, Saw were about due for another hit, weren't they, Matt? 
Yeah, perhaps the most iconic hit of their catalogue. This is the song that everybody knows, whether they're five years old or 95. This is the song that will never, ever die. This is the star that everybody loves. This is Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. And we're doing that next episode. That's right. And we have many of the people involved in Saw's most internationally famous single to talk to us about how it came together. And it wasn't a straightforward process, as we'll hear from producers, mixers, backing vocalists, pretty much everyone but Rick himself. We would love to talk to Rick. The door is always open. You could say that we are never going to give up, perhaps, Matt. That's right. And we love this record even when it wasn't cool to love it. It's cool to love it again. We've never stopped loving this record and for very good reason. So Rick, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. Until then, if you want to hear more from some of the people we have spoken to, check out the bonus material for this episode for the full interviews with Precious Wilson and Angela from Dolly Dots. You can access that at chartbeats.com.au slash saw and you can subscribe to listen to the bonus material for as little as $2 a month. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed it really does help us keep this podcast going and you can also rate and review us on spotify and apple Podcasts. thank you to everybody who's been writing reviews i have been reading them all indeed so that's it from us for another fortnight we'll see you in two weeks to talk never gonna give you up bye for now see everybody see you